guys. Let's just pray once more. Thank you, Lord, for the beginning of this new year together. Once again, we, we say uh, to you that you are welcome in this place, and we depend on your presence here. We submit to your rule here. You are the king of this place, and we pray for grace to submit our whole lives to you continuously. In this year, may our gatherings be marked by a strong sense of your presence. May the teaching be, be fruitful, helpful. Uh, good and right and honoring to you, and may our interactions with one another be characterized by love so that as we leave this place, we will know the truth that there is a God who loves us and wants a relationship with us. Uh, bless this time, we pray, for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome to church. Glad to see you 11 o'clockers. Thanks for joining us today. Um, raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be preaching out of uh, a verse from each of the first books of the New Testament, each of the first, each of the Gospels. Um, so page numbers will be on the screen and in sermon notes. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. Raise your hand if you'd like a sermon notes page. If there's anybody who would like a children's focused larger notes page with a clipboard, let the ushers know. We'll make sure that gets to you as well. Uh, if a little more interactive, um, potentially helpful. Also, if this is your first time here with us, so glad you're here. Welcome. Um, you're welcome to fill out the bottom of the notes page. If you want to uh, pass on your contact info, you don't need to feel obligated, but that'll help us stay in touch. And either way, if this is your first time with us, we've got a bag of freshly roasted coffee beans for you in the cafe, and we'd love to send one home with you just as like a gesture of, we would love to share life with you. And our hope is that you're encouraged and blessed this morning by your time here at Emmaus. All right. Three questions to start us off this morning, get the juices flowing, all right? We should be wide awake by now. It's 11, right? All right. <clears throat> Question number one, who is Jesus? Take five, six seconds, write down anything you can. Who is Jesus? There's libraries on this, but just one or two things. Who is Jesus? This is just for you. Second question, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach? Can you write down anything? Good. If you're drawing a blank, that's your New Year's resolution. All right, improve on that. <coughs> Finally, uh, third question, what did Jesus do? Can you identify something Jesus did? Maybe you've grown up hearing these stories. Maybe it's brand new. So there's no, you know, but do you know anything that Jesus did? This is the focus, what Jesus did. This will be the focus of our first series in 2020. The series is called The Practices of Jesus. And here is the thinking behind this series, friends. First, it's absolutely critical that we know who Jesus is. This is, in a sense, the question, right? Jesus asks Peter this question, who do you say that I am? This is really the fundamental kind of personal question that we're responsible uh, to, to, to answer or to respond to. Jesus himself asks this question. We need to know who Jesus is. Second, it's also really important that we know what Jesus taught. It would be difficult to say that you are a disciple of Christ 
that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you can't know or respond or relay uh, something of what Jesus taught. In other words, it would be really hard for me to take seriously a Muslim, uh, a Muslim who declares or says that he is devoted to Muhammad if he cannot respond or recite something that Muhammad said. In a similar way, Christians ought to be able to, um, to be, ought to be able to articulate something of what Jesus said, right? I've told you the story before of sitting in the front row, uh, like right where you are, Josh, of a class in graduate school. It was an evening class. It was taught by this legendary professor named Dr. Walter Elwell. He'd published a ton of books. Everybody knew who he was. You were lucky to get into his class. This was uh, a class that I took like in the late 90s when I was in graduate school. It was called The Life and Teachings of Jesus, and this is how he began his class. He's this little tiny guy, and he comes out from behind the lectern, and he comes up to the first person at the front of the row, and he says, what's your name? And he would say, Josh. And he'd say, Josh, what did Jesus say? And he just looked at the person. And, and this is what happened. It was so funny. She said, it was a girl, and she said, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's like, no, that's John. What did Jesus say? And then everybody got really like, oh, and it's like you freeze. You can't remember. And then the next person, Kelly. What did Jesus say? And he was making a point, right? He was making a really good point. I still remember the point. It's about the only thing I remember from that class like 20 years later, right? But the point was that if you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to know what Jesus taught. You ought to be able to articulate something of what it is that Jesus said. Um, so we need to know who Jesus is. That's important. We need to know what Jesus taught. But there's a very important sense in which if we don't do what Jesus did, it really, it really doesn't matter in a sense how much we know about who he is and what he said if we haven't put it into practice, if we're not doing what Jesus did. It, we can fill our minds with knowledge, but if it doesn't change the way we live, then that knowledge misses the point, right? It's Jesus' own brother James who writes, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So the action is critical. And a typical pattern that we often embrace in church, especially in sermons and teaching-focused sermons like I kind of tend toward, is we teach the words of Jesus, and then we encourage one another to put those words into practice. And this makes sense. This is kind of the, the pattern of learning that most of us are uh, familiar with. In other words, you describe the concept or the idea, and then you urge somebody to, to do it. Now, now go home and, and do this, right? So um, this is reasonable, but it's also difficult because there's a really long way between an idea and an action, turns out. Turns out, especially Christians in our culture, pretty good, relatively good at knowing something about Jesus, relatively poor at actually doing what Jesus has, has told us to do. Um, so there's a long way from idea to action. So I was thinking about scenes in my life, times in my life, when I've actually experienced real transformation, real change, real growth. Here's an example. For years, I had a goal of running a marathon, uh, but I, I didn't even attempt one. For like seven, eight, nine years, I ran these little short distance runs, like it's zoos and things like that. And then I read a lot about running. I, I probably took Runner's Magazine for five or six years before I, you know, really even ran more than a 5K. I was living my comfortable 5K life is what I was doing. I was just healthy, happy in that, in that space. I wanted to run a marathon, 
But <clears throat> I said, but in truth, it was totally out of my league. That kind of distance was completely out of my league. And then there's these two guys, they both live in, here in Lincoln, Jeff and Tony, <clears throat> and they invited me to run with them. And it was a really hard season of, of my life. Uh, my son was very sick. We were in the hospital every week. Sometimes we were spending the night there for several nights at a time. Everything in life at that time was more intense. It was more edgy. I felt like I was in a battle. So these two guys come up to me, and they're like, hey, we'd like to run with you. Why don't we, we'd like to invite you to run with us. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't have time. I don't have time to run with you guys. Um, but I was trying to be polite. And I said, what time do you run? <clears throat> and they said, oh, we run at 4. And I said, oh, I'm still, I'm still working at 4, you know. And they're like, no, 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 a.m. Oh, a.m. And they said, yeah, you can, we'll pick you up right in front of your house. We'll run right by your house. We could be there at 4.10 and 4.10 a.m. And you can run with us if you don't have anything else going on. <laughs> yeah. And I had a hard time saying that I did have something else going on at 4.10 a.m. Uh, so I started running with them. And within a few months, I ran a marathon, right? There was like real change, real growth, real transformation. So here's the point of the story. Sometimes the road to transformation, it begins with action. It begins with action. There is a limit to how much learning about a marathon was helpful. If by helpful, I mean actually was changing my life. There's a limit to how much talking about running a marathon was actually doing anything to change things. Maybe you don't need to learn everything there is to know about marathons in order to actually run one. Maybe a better way to grow or to change or to transform your life is to just start running. In other words, maybe you don't need to start by becoming a Jesus expert. Get all your questions answered first on an academic or intellectual level. Maybe you don't need to be able to quote all of his teachings. Maybe you just start doing the one or two things you know he did, right? Maybe that's the door into the truly transformational journey, is just doing what Jesus did. Maybe just doing what he did is what will unlock the truth of his teachings, what he said, which is what will enable you to actually know him, know who he is, and have a real relationship with him. So maybe I don't have to be even fully convinced of who Jesus is. Maybe I don't have to have a thorough understanding of Christianity, not even necessarily believe all of it. But what if I just tried out a couple of the things Jesus did? What if I just embraced some of the practices of Jesus? So that's the series that we're going to jump into this new year, calling it The Practices of Jesus, and we're focusing in on seven things that Jesus did, like this. Here's the first one. Jesus withdrew to draw near. Jesus withdrew, meaning he came away, he got alone, he pulled off the road, he took a break from others in order to draw near, in order to be close to the Father, spend time with God the Father, in order to pray and be with his Father. Jesus withdrew to draw near. This is so interesting to me because there's not a big focus on this in the Bible. In other words, there's no point in which Jesus says, here's a teaching on solitude and prayer that we can just unpack. It doesn't happen like that. But sprinkled in between the stories of Jesus' big teachings about issues like money or the poor or the condition of the heart and between like the stories of the dramatic and public ministry of Jesus, like the actions of Jesus, the big healings 
are, are these brief little mentions of this somewhat puzzling and rather mysterious practice of Jesus. What's the practice? Withdrawing to draw near. Let me give you three examples. One from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. It's on page 719. Luke chapter 5. Luke writes, The news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So interesting, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is translated lonely places. It's almost always translated wilderness, desert, into solitude, but the idea is that Jesus withdrew into this lonely place, into a desert, and Luke observes that this practice was somewhat common for Jesus. The verb is in the imperfect sense. That's why it says Jesus often withdrew. You could also translate this, Jesus was continually withdrawing. Isn't that interesting? It's not the, it's not the picture of Jesus that we typically have. Jesus was continually withdrawing. Here's another example from Matthew's gospel. Right at the end of the story of Jesus feeding thousands of people with a little kid's lunch. Some of you have heard that story. Matthew chapter 14, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 ends with verse 21. Matthew writes, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Next sentence. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, look at that, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So Matthew records this epic scene of miraculous provision. 15,000 people fed from a couple of pieces of fish and bread, a little kid's lunch. And what's going to happen right next is Jesus is going to catch up to his disciples as they row their boat across a stormy lake by walking on the water. Okay, so you got the huge feeding of the 5,000. You got the walking on the water scene. And right here in the crack between those two stories is he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Isn't that interesting? Here's one more example from Mark chapter 1, the gospel of Mark. I love Mark. Super practical, specific action-oriented, check out this sentence, Mark 1.35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out to a solitary place where he prayed. Just spells it out for us right there. Early in the morning, still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Next verse, 36, Simon, who Jesus renames Peter in a little bit, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And so now we have tension introduced into this story around this practice, the spiritual practice of Jesus. In other words, those from whom Jesus withdraws don't often appreciate the fact that he's not totally accessible to them all the time. And they're irritated. Everyone is looking for you, Simon says including Simon, too, apparently. He's a little bit irked. So what we see in just three examples is that Jesus withdraws. He gets away for these three reasons, or these three ways. He does, he does so by himself. He does this often. And he does this in order to pray. He does this all by himself 
He does this often, and he does so in order to pray. Now, there's an assumption that the writers make. All three of the gospel writers make the same assumption. And the, the assumption is this, that the reader understands what the writer means when they say Jesus went off to pray, which probably at some level we get. I think at some level we probably have an idea about what it means for Jesus to go pray to the Father. But actually you think about that and you start going, huh, uh, maybe this is an example in, instead of, of something that people talk a lot about but don't necessarily really understand. Like, what is going on? Here's Jesus the Son praying to Jesus the Father. So in case this is something that we all sort of assume we know about but really don't know much about and practice even less, let me try to lean into what it is that Jesus is doing when he's going off alone often to pray to the Father. The practice of Jesus that we're talking about is this practice of withdrawing in order to draw near. And basically, I think there's two reasons Jesus does this. It's all under the umbrella of prayer, right? But let's try to lean in. What does that mean, all right? First, most important, the reason Jesus prays, the reason Jesus withdraws is it's a relational reason. It's relational. Jesus withdraws from relationships with the crowd, relationships with his team, his disciples, in order to draw near to his relationship with the Father. Based on what we read here, as well as other teachings of Jesus, it seems clear that the main reason Jesus withdraws and prays is to spend time with his Father. God the Son continuously withdraws into solitary places, into wilderness, to be with God the Father. In fact, some scholars connect those three verses that we just read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They connect those three verses with a verse from right after John's baptism where the sky opens up. Did I say John? I meant Jesus' baptism. The sky opens up and a voice from heaven says, this is my son, I love him, I'm well pleased with him. And that connection comes from the idea that what the conversation happening in these solitude prayer times is all about the identity of Jesus, the affirmation of the Father's love for the Son, the reminder of why he's here and who he is, to rest in his true identity as someone who is known by God the Father and loved by God the Father. And if this is Jesus' primary reason to get alone and pray, it's also our primary reason to get alone and to pray. It's to be reminded of the essential truth of who we are and the fact that we are loved by God. Right? This changes things. It's, so the reason we should withdraw is the reason Jesus withdrew. It's, it's relational. It's to draw near to God. It's to be with God. It's to see and to understand our lives in relationship to God. Because there's all kinds of, of uh, realities um, on which or in relation to which you understand yourself. You, the, the whether your neighbor likes you or you're doing well at work or you're accomplishing this achievement at school or all kinds of things that speak to your identity and value. Getting away and alone with God is to say, this is the primary identifier of my worth and my identity. What do you say about me, God? If we know who we are, that we are children of God, and that we are loved by God, it sets other things into alignment, and it gives us perspective. 
on all the other voices and realities and challenges that are happening. This is important. It's not that the, that the work that you withdraw from or the relationships that you withdraw from are bad. It's not that at all. Because this, this is the work God has given you to do, and these are the people God has given you to live with. Um, but, but there's great power in prioritizing specific and focused time with your creator, with your redeemer, with the true lover of your soul, who does not say, is the business thriving? Is the, is the parenting going well? Is, is the, are you getting good grades? Because his affection for you is not based on any of that stuff. It's just based on who you are. You're a child of God. Uh, last week after we were cleaning up after church, one of the brothers came up to me and he said, I'm really excited about this week. I'm taking my wife to Monterey for a few days and we're just going to hang out, right? We're just going to spend some time together. They were taking a break from their jobs. They were leaving their kids with their, with their parents, their grandparents, right? And they're just going to go spend a few days, just the two of them, in Monterey. No agenda, just time together. No purpose except to honor their relationship and the union between the two of them. And you, want, you understand the value of this, right? And I understood as soon as he told me, oh, I thought that, that sounds wonderful, right? We get this. There's a basic understanding, I think, in a relationship um, that there's something that exists between you and me. There's an energy, there's a commitment, there's a bond, there's an affection, there's a love, there's a thing, and that needs to be, that needs to be nurtured. It needs to be taken care of. Like there's you and there's me, and then there's us. And that's got a life of its own, and it's not going to thrive automatically. So it is totally valuable to just spend time on us. No agenda, no plan. Let's just go spend some time in Monterey together, right? The reason Jesus gets away to be with the Father is the same reason that we need to get away to be with the Father. It's just to be together. It's just to be together. To spend a few minutes a day or a few hours a week or a couple of days a year where you peel off and you just, the whole idea of the time, the whole purpose of the time is to nurture the relationship, to, to, to support the union. I think this is the primary reason Jesus withdraws to draw near to the Father, to get alone with God, the Father. The main reason Jesus prays is to talk to his Father, to listen to his Father, to be with his Father. All right, that's reason number one. I think there's a secondary reason as well, and others see it as well. Um, but this is a reason that you can only infer because he never explicitly says, this is why I do this. No one else says, this is why he does this. So this is a reason that theologians infer is a secondary reason um, for Jesus' getting away with the Father. First reason, relational. That's the main reason. Second reason, we would say it's practical or it's functional. Or maybe you say it's utilitarian or it's real world, down to earth. So first reason is relational, and another way to characterize the second reason is to say it is a byproduct of the first reason. It is something that comes from the first reason well done. The idea is that there is some practical value beyond the relational value that comes from prayer, and it seems to be part of what the gospel writers are communicating. How are they communicating it? By the placement of their observation about Jesus withdrawing to lonely places to pray. In other words, is there a message kind of between the lines 
uh, in the fact that these short phrases revealing to us that Jesus often goes up to the mountain to pray often get dropped right in the middle of these bigger, more public and dramatic and famous scenes from the life of Jesus? Two patterns stand out. Uh, Two times that Jesus prays stand out. One, after a long and a prolonged and intense season of ministry. Jesus often withdraws to be alone with the Father after a prolonged and intense season. And the second time is before some big decision or big battle. Here, let's look at the Mark example again. Mark chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That's verse 35 of Mark 1. Do you know what happened in verse 34? A whole town comes to the house where Jesus is sleeping. And starting after dark, he spends the whole night healing people and casting demons out of people. And I don't know if you've ever, like, engaged in either of those two kinds of ministry. Even for one person one time, it's exhausting. Jesus does this for a whole town, Mark says. And the next morning, he withdraws to pray, right? Why? Well, first reason, it's relational, to spend time with the Father. Why else? Probably to recover, right? Probably to rest, He's probably exhausted. In other words, one of the byproducts of Jesus' practice of withdrawing away to pray is, is rest, it's, and it's spiritual rest. It's deep rest. He's not binge-watching <laughs> some show, right? He's not, you know, he's doing recreational work that actually recreates. He's spending time with the Father. That's what he's doing, and it's recovery If you look at Jesus' practice of prayer from a practical level, he seems to get away to pray when he's tired, especially after really demanding seasons of ministry. First, Jesus spends time with the Father in seasons of recovery. Second, there are clues that Jesus spends time with the Father in seasons of preparation. In seasons of preparation, take note as you start the new year, as you look out to the the whole calendar ahead of you. Here's a verse we haven't looked at yet, Luke chapter 6. Verse 12, it starts a paragraph. Luke starts a paragraph with this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Spent the night praying to God. Next sentence. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them who he, whom he also designated apostles. That means specific called out ones. You get this historically, magnificently significant role. It's fascinating. It was, it, it's noted by Luke that the night before Jesus does, historically speaking, probably his most important work, probably makes the most important decision he makes in his whole ministry. I'm going to choose the 12 apostles. And if you know this, so this reaches all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel, and it reaches all the way forward to the pillars of heaven These 12 people are really important, and and Luke points out that the day before Jesus selects those 12, he spends the whole night in prayer. I think that's amazing. 
Perhaps one of the most important practical reasons for Jesus' practice of withdrawing to draw near is to prepare for the significant work that is coming. In fact, another time, it's perhaps the most famous time that Jesus withdraws by himself to pray is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he's arrested and tried and tortured and crucified and tempted and praise God, not my will, but your will be done. And right before the biggest battle of his life, he is alone in the garden and he's praying. So, one, Jesus spends time with the Father in seasons of recovery. And two, there are also clues that Jesus spends time with the Father in seasons of preparation. In seasons of preparation. All right, let me wrap up with a warning and then um, a challenge and then a brief moment. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. Much of what has been taught about prayer in the church, including our church, and I bet there's series, I bet there's sermon series starting today that follow this pattern in churches all over the place. They are, they, much of what is being taught is here are the benefits to prayer. Here are the practical benefits. To, here are, here's 10 reasons why you should pray, which is fine, but here's the warning that I give to myself and I offer it to you as well. If we overemphasize the practical benefits or purposes of getting away for prayer. We, will, we run the risk of reducing prayer to a strategy to use to get what we want. You follow me? If we overemphasize the practical benefits of prayer, 10 reasons why you should pray. Who careful? Because you're turning this sacred, holy, relational thing into, you're turning God into a vending machine is what you're doing. You are relating to God, yes, but you're relating to him as a vending machine. You go to him to get what you want. Um, and we got to be really careful about that. Jesus demonstrates and models the prioritization of a relationship with the Father. That's the reason he goes away, to spend time. Jesus is modeling something essential to real relationships. Time together. Okay. I, it's not essential that I get something from you or you get something from me. I can do that with anybody at any coffee shop. Like It's just a transaction. A, a real relationship requires time together. So this is primarily about relational intimacy. It's about knowing God. It's about talking to God, not just talking about God. Anybody besides me feel like you talk about God a lot? But don't talk to God as much as you talk about God, right? We need to talk to God as much as we're talking. I need to talk to God as much as I'm talking about God. And I talk about God a lot. Jesus is not, friends, in this withdrawing to pray thing, Jesus is not showing us an exceptional spiritual practice. He is showing us an essential spiritual practice. This is a lifeline. This is not exceptional. This is essential. We need to prioritize this relationship. If the focus of our prayer, our time with God, is to get something out of our time with God, then we're, we're in that vending machine space. The only reason I stand near, the only reason I draw near to a vending machine, because I want to get something out of it, Right? If we overemphasize the importance of getting something out of our time with God, God becomes something we use. And God is not something we use. God is someone we love because he has loved us first. Think how ridiculous it would be if I would have gone up to the brother that I saw this morning who went to Monterey last week and I said, hey, what did you get out of your time in Monterey? It would almost be offensively um, 
like it would be an example of missing the point, right? Oh, no, 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 that's not why, that's not why I went to Monterey. Like, tell me four practical benefits of taking some time away with your wife. Uh, that would be like an adventure in missing the point, right? Now, were there some beautiful, practical byproducts of some focused time away with his wife? I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were right? I'm sure there's all kinds of renewal and, and, uh, and conversations that had been shelved for months that finally they got. But the main reason was to, was to nurture the relationship. That's the main reason. And that's the main reason Jesus withdraws to pray, not to get something out of the Father. It's to spend time with the Father. It's to nurture the relationship. It's a trip to Monterey, right? There's no agenda. It's just time together. That's Jesus' practice. And then out of that practice comes all kinds of practical fruit, like deep spiritual recovery, like wisdom, like instruction for your next step, like a sense of clarity, courage, peace, the assurance of God's love. All kinds of practical stuff comes, but we got to keep that in the right order. All right, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. It's the invitation, if challenge is too confrontational. I invite you to spend a couple minutes every day withdrawing to draw near to God. A couple minutes every day. Withdrawing from all the agenda, all the responsibilities. Why? Why, why am I doing this? To be with God. I'm here. I'm just here to be with you. A couple minutes. And I invite you to take a couple hours every week to just be with God. It's called Sabbath. <laughs> They've been doing it a while, right? Uh, it's why many of you are here. What is the purpose of this time? What did you get out of church? Mm, kind of missing the point. The, the, this, the point of this is there's going to be some time devoted to God in our family, in my life as an individual. I'm going to go and I'm just going to adore Jesus. I'm going I'm to learn about him. I'm going to talk about him. I'm going to sing to him. I'm going to receive and give. But it's really just about time. This is devoted to that. This time is devoted to, to God. And third, a couple of days in 2020. I want to invite you to, to schedule a couple of days in 2020 just to go be with God. Maybe it's a road trip. Maybe it's a, a, a backpacking trip all by yourself. Maybe it's a retreat, some sort of a personal retreat. You just withdraw from everything else. Why? Because this relationship that I have with God, it needs to be nurtured. <laughs> it's not going to thrive automatically. I need to nurture this, right? All right, finally... Let's just take a moment. Just take a moment. I know we're together, which is beautiful. We're not apart. We are not withdrawn in solitude. We're together. But let's practice this. Let's just take 15 seconds, and I'll keep the time. Just to be with God. You can begin by saying, God, here I am.
Loving Father, we acknowledge that it is an amazing gift that you have communicated to us that we are welcome in your presence, invited into relationship with you. Thank you for that. And I ask you now that as we begin a new year together, you would draw us close and you would um, give us the the, uh, ability and the courage and the commitment to value our relationship with you enough that we spend some time together. You are a good God and you have articulated, you've expressed your love for us. May we respond. May we respond well to that. Thank you, Lord. For your love and for this space and this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.